I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Welcome to episode two of Jack. It is Sunday, December 11th, and I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe, and there's a lot of special counsel news this week, uh, which I think reflects the point I was making the first episode about the investigations moving forward without delay. We're going to cover it all today, including additional classified documents being found in a storage unit in Florida, uh, a flurry of subpoenas issued by the special counsel's office, and Judge Cannon siding with the DOJ in a skirmish over putting the special master on hold. Yep, we also have a story about Donald's PAC, the Save America PAC, paying the legal bills of key witnesses. Uh, we have additional testimony from Stephen Miller and uh, Donald's comment about terminating the Constitution or parts of it. And Andy, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, before we get into this, I have a lot of questions about a lot of stuff that's happened this week, but I just want to let everybody know and acknowledge we've changed the name of the show to Jack. Uh, so um, we just didn't want to cause any confusion, we wanted to clean it up a little. Uh, and, and so I just wanted to let everybody know from now on, if you want to look for this show, it's called Jack. I thought it was simpler and uh, easier to follow. And I don't know, it just looks cleaner to me. So just wanted to acknowledge that. Uh, but let's move forward, because uh, I have some questions for you, Andy, about some of the news that's come out this week. Let's start with the documents investigation. So we're going we're gonna to do the documents investigation in the first segment of the show, and then we'll switch over to the January 6th part of the investigation. And uh, we'll kick it off with the news that apparently additional searches were conducted for classified documents or documents bearing classifications markings, because I have a lot of questions about this. Uh, from Caitlin Collins and Sarah Murray at CNN, here's the lead. Quote, two documents with classified markings were found in a Florida storage unit during a search by a team hired by former President Donald Trump's lawyers, according to a person familiar with the situation who spoke to CNN. Those documents were handed over to the FBI. No other documents with classification markings were found during a search of four of Trump's properties, the source said. Andrew, uh, there was an earlier story, you know, besides CNN in the Washington Post by Devlin Barron, among others, that probably went out too early because they said two properties were searched and they failed to mention to CNN, or as CNN did, that the lawyers had not yet attested, Trump's lawyers had not yet attested that no documents were found. It also framed the entire story as though Donald was being uh, transparent and cooperative, uh, which I would disagree with, because this was ordered by a judge, Chief Judge Beryl Howell, and a search like this has been recommended by Trump lawyer Chris Kyes earlier, but Trump rebuffed him. Uh, I think Barrett wanted to be the first out with this story, but I think in the rush, he might have missed a lot of key details. Uh, and then Barrett went on MSNBC and posited that this was the Department of Justice and Donald working together hand in hand like buddies to prevent having to execute another search warrant. And that opinion of his, I don't believe, was sourced. And that's where I, my questions come in. The Department of Justice has already shown that if it has evidence to get a search warrant, it gets a search warrant. We saw that on August 8th at Mar-a-Lago. I don't see this as the DOJ kowtowing to Donald to prevent another search. Can you talk a little bit about what's required to search a person's property and how finding evidence at Mar-a-Lago doesn't really give law enforcement the right to enter his other properties? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot packed into the story as you've you've detailed well. So let's start with the very basics. Um, a search warrant is issued by a federal judge only after the Department of Justice presents information and evidence to the judge in a request for a search warrant that proves that there is probable cause to believe there is evidence of a crime located at the at the location described in the search warrant application. So a couple things to, to really focus on here. DOJ is restricted. They can only search the property or, or the business or whatever it is that's specifically described in the warrant application. And this is important because they can only look within that place. Let's say it's a house. Okay, let's say maybe it's a uh, uh, an aged uh, beach resort in Florida. 
uh, also serves as the residence of a former president, they're only allowed to look in spaces and places within that residence that could potentially uh, contain the items of evidence that you've also described in the warrant. So in other words, if you go looking for a stolen car, you can't look in the refrigerator because you can't park a car in a refrigerator. But if you go looking for documents, because documents can be contained anywhere, that essentially gets you access to any part of the property described in the warrant and also any container therein. So every, every box can be opened, every drawer can be opened. Um, so it's with a search warrant like the one we know we had in Mar-a-Lago, it really gives the government great authority to look in every space that could potentially find documents. Now, as to the question of whether or not the department is kind of, you know, playing kind of uh, cooperatively with the Trump team in this in this uh, kind of follow on period after the initial search warrant, I would say absolutely not. That is not a, a um, a road that DOJ would go down. I think it's highly likely that they communicated to Trump's attorneys that they thought there might be additional documents located either at Mar-a-Lago or at other properties controlled by Trump that weren't searched with the initial August uh, search warrant. So that could be obviously Bedminster, Trump Tower, uh, and whatever other properties he has. Um, if the department felt they had an ironclad case of probable cause to present a judge, I am confident they would have done that and they would have proceeded with a second search warrant. So the fact that they never went and asked for a second search warrant indicates to me that they probably didn't feel like the level of proof that they had to support that warrant request uh, was sufficient. Nevertheless, they likely told Trump's team, look, you should go look in these other places to make sure that you don't also have classified inf information or material or even uh, presidential records secreted away at other locations. It sounds like Trump's lawyers, uh, beginning with Keese, made that same suggestion to Trump. It was not received well, if you believe the reporting, but eventually they came around to the idea to saying, hey, you know what? We need to bring in our own team of independent attorneys to go to each of these places and see if there's anything there. And lo and behold, what they find sounds like a couple more classified documents. Yeah. And and also, it's, it's a little like less of a coming around, right? Because I believe that uh, Judge Beryl Howell asked the Trump lawyer legal team to attest to her in court, under penalty of perjury, obviously, that all documents had been handed over. And they said yes. And then at that point, the Department of Justice was like, we don't believe you. And so Judge Beryl Howell was ordered them to hire this outside firm and said, go forth and search uh, other properties and so, you know, I don't see this as any kind of a we're working together like a great team to, to you know, make all these things happen. I'm, I'm with you. If they had ironclad evidence or at least probable cause to put in, in, in an affidavit and get it signed off by a judge to search additional properties, I think they would have. And, you know, I want to I want to put the shoe on the other foot a little bit here. That's a good thing. These are criminal defendants rights protected in the Constitution we don't want to live in a country where just because we think you're a bad dude and you've stolen stuff before, we can just go into a different property and search it. Um, any fruits of that search would be, I think, easily tossed out in court. Uh, and we, I think we need to kind of respect the as much as, you know, if you don't like Trump, I understand. But I think we have to respect those constitutional protections for criminal defendants. Well, of course, right? You don't, all because your beach resort slash residence gets searched by the federal government, it doesn't mean that you have now given up your right to privacy of your golf club in New Jersey or your house apartment in New York or whatever else he has. So yeah, you're, you've hit on a very important piece of kind of criminal jurisprudence. Another thing I'd point out is there was this kind of weird invitation by the Trump team and some of the filings in the Mar-a-Lago case where they said, well, you you know, we invite kind of DOJ to come in and search again uh, in a to conduct a search that would be overseen by the Trump folks. That is a non-starter from day one. DOJ, especially in a case like this where every step of the way is is um, you know, there's no there's no like consent here, right? Everything is being fought over. Every each of those fights are, re are resulting in appeals, some of them to the Supreme Court. So 
DOJ is going to try to keep this as black and white as possible. If they have PC, they're going to go in and get a search warrant, and then they're going to come, you know, rushing into whatever location has been described in that warrant, and they're going to search it in the to the full extent of the law. They're not going to come knock on the door and ask for permission to come in and maybe sign a consent, or you can look here, but you can't look there. Because the result of a process like that is just an incomplete search. It doesn't serve the department, and it doesn't really... Um, it doesn't really serve the defendant either. So it's going to be search warrant or nothing for DOJ. And it looks like without a new warrant, they strongly suggested that the Trump team independently of their own kind of volition go and look for additional documents. And the important thing is that they found them. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm also like, I don't know if those documents being in a I almost said offshore storage facility, storage facilities, you know, separate from Mar-a-Lago uh, that, that made its way through Virginia. Uh, they were the, these boxes were in Virginia for six months, which could have maybe have an impact on venue. Uh, I don't necessarily know that that could be easily proven as something done intentionally, but it's certainly mishandling uh, of classified information. And I don't think, well, we were in a hurry to pack up is really a defense for for mishandling either you know, on purpose, willfully or inadvertently classified documents. Can you talk a little bit about, because you've worked on handling cases before, does it have to be proven to be willful and you have to have knowledge of it? Or does inadvertent mishandling of classified, uh, you know, information also carry a penalty with it? It certainly can. You know, these these cases are so fact-specific. Um, I haven't seen, in all the mishandling cases I've been familiar with, Quite honestly, I haven't seen many felony mishandling cases go forward against people who removed documents or material in a way that could have been not unintentional. It's also possible to resolve mishandling cases with a misdemeanor conviction and penalty. But again, you know, it's, it's the criminal route on these sorts of interactions is typically reserved for people who you know executed some level of intentional judgment that resulted in the material being taken to or stored in a place that was not authorized for classified. You know, there's all kinds of other resolutions to those cases. Sometimes people, if they've been reckless in their handling of things or unintentionally mishandled things, they can be disciplined at work. They can lose their access to classified material, but all that's, uh, none of that stuff are, are, those aren't criminal results. Andy, can you think of any other person that we might know about that perhaps recklessly or unintentionally mishandled classified, potentially classified information? <laughs> I'm not, I can't think of anyone. Maybe you can I can help think me. of, <laughs> I can think of one. Um, that's, a, man, this is, talk about PTSD. Okay. This is episode two and I'm having my second PTSD moment. <laughs> Hopefully that's a, a trend that doesn't continue across the podcast. But, uh, you know, that was really where all the heated debate took place in terms of the resolution of the Hillary Clinton uh, email investigation in which we famously and very publicly um, announced our position, which uh, which was, uh, I say we, I mean, just the FBI in terms of saying that we would not go request a an indictment of uh uh former secretary clinton um based on our investigative results because we couldn't prove that element of intent we've and jim comey opined that you know he thought that she had been reckless in the way that she handled her emails and and some classified information that had been that had traversed her uh personal email network also a, a wildly controversial statement. So, but again, it comes down to that, that really our investigative finding, which was valid then, and I think remains valid now, is that we were not able to prove that those classified uh, materials ended up in Hillary Clinton's email through any act or uh, intentional act by Hillary Clinton. It's a tough thing to prove and very frequently becomes really the nugget of these investigations. Yeah, that and none of those were actually marked uh, classified. None of those emails actually had classification markings like we've seen oh, in the. Yeah. I mean, huge differences, right, between what was found in that case and what we, the you know, what we know about the materials from the Mar-a-Lago search. I mean, we could spend an entire episode on that. Maybe we should later. But there's essentially no comparison between these two. Um, and which is why I think to get back to your earlier point, A.G., 
the fact that we found two documents or Trump's team found two documents in a storage facility that was part of the transportation process that ultimately, you know, started in the White House, packed up some stuff, went to another warehouse in Virginia, ultimately made its way to Florida to now we know another storage location. And some of that material ends up in Mar-a-Lago, some in the president, in the former president's office, some downstairs in uh, some sort of closet with probably like banquet equipment and stuff. The fact that there's additional materials in the storage facility, it really reflects a little bit on the chaotic and maybe not very professional, not very effective way the stuff was ultimately packed up at the White House. Like it kind of opens that can of worms of were these intentional decisions at the White House as to what would be included in Trump's boxes or was it just like every piece of paper on the desk got scraped into a, a container and, and sent south? So in some ways, it almost opens up additional questions that I think could be actually very complicated for the prosecution to answer if, of course, this, this case goes forward to a criminal prosecution. Yeah, I think the more slam dunk is the subpoena and then the attestation that everything had been handed over and 38 documents handed over in a double tape red weld envelope. And then there having been video showing boxes moving around and then the search warrant showing more, more documents. Absolutely. Being found. That I think. I don't think these two new documents really are, are any sort of a significant plus for the investigators. They have plenty to work with that they found at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. And just another little part here on the, the part of the classified documents. We'll talk about the non-classified documents in a second. Uh, but with the with the classified documents, we learned this week that the ODNI has concluded its initial risk assessment into the Mar-a-Lago classified documents and congressional briefings are being scheduled. Uh, Rep. Mike Turner of Ohio uh, said this to face the nation. He said, we're scheduling these briefings. Andrew, you've been through these. What does a briefing like this look like? What does it consist of? And can Congress answer questions about it? Can they talk about these kinds of briefings publicly without revealing classified information? Sure. So the answer to your last question depends on the answer to your first question. So if the briefing is intended for an audience on the Hill that is classified and the brief is scheduled as a a classified briefing, um, no, the members cannot talk about it after the fact. So Imagine if the briefing is scheduled for, let's say it's going to take place in front of the Intelligence Committee, um, either in the House or Senate side, uh, those committee members all have requisite clearances in a briefing before them. You could actually talk about the specifics of individual documents that were found uh, in uh, as a result of the search. Um, but at the end of that briefing, the members cannot then, you know, walk outside the, the briefing room and uh, describe what they saw to the huddled uh, masses of reporters who, who stand there waiting for those kind of comments. If the briefing is to another group in which some of them have cl- uh, clearances and some don't, uh, it would likely be uh, scheduled as an unclassified brief. In that case, the DNI folks will come in and they'll basically describe in general terms the sorts of things that were found. You know, members are are still not supposed to immediately go out and talk about that to the press because it's an ongoing criminal investigation, and um, you know they they uh, usually provide even unclassified briefings at what they call for official use only uh, sort of circumstances. Um, but that stuff has a a history of being shared with the media in in some degree. So it really comes down to who's going to be briefed and whether it's going to be a classified or unclassified briefing. Yeah. And I think that it's Mike Turner that's talking about this. Uh, I don't he's not in the gang of eight. Um, I I didn't look up to see whether he was on the intelligence committee or not. But it it seems like if he's part of this briefing, then at least it's not a gang of eight briefing. Um, But, you know, who knows? We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And, you know, an, uh, another complication here is the fact that it's part of an ongoing criminal investigation. So DNI folks are going to try to stay away from talking about anything having to do with the legality of these things being in Mar-a-Lago or how they might impact a potential prosecution. They're not even going to opine on that stuff. They're simply going to say, this is the document. Here's what it says. Or here's a description of what it says. And here's why we think that it that it's Uh, storage at a place like Mar-a-Lago might be a danger to national security, or maybe not. Maybe the things in every single document are so old, they're no longer relevant. They don't think it's a danger uh, to national security. I find that almost impossible to believe, but we have to kind of keep our minds open to both sides. And, And we also know that because the classified documents, because of an 11th Circuit victory, 
uh, not this most recent one, but a previous one, we know those classified documents did not have to be handed over to a special master for review or given to the Trump team, which I think is what they re- they seem to really want that uh, information. They wanted they filed another thing to unseal the affidavit that got them the search warrant, uh, the, the redacted parts. Uh, they did that recently with Judge Cannon. I, I feel like she ignored that <laughs> request. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the the they didn't get turned over. Uh, to the special master for review, because that would compromise things. That would be part of a risk assessment. And, you know, they were able to fight and say, hey, this risk risk assessment is too important. We can't interrupt it. We're going to continue doing it. You can't have the classified documents handed over to, to you know, Jim Trusty <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah. the, and the special master. Um, so th- I think this would be a good time to pivot from from that information about the classified documents to what now is going on with the non-classifieds. Sure, sure. And, and, you know, I think, um, you know, to remember the original Judge Cannon order was so broad and so vague that even DOJ walked away not really clear as to whether or not the order would prohibit the DNI folks from conducting their risk assessment as to whether or not, you know, what sort of damage may have been done by the uh, mishandling of this stuff. Of course, she then said in a follow up, oh, no, DNI can go forward, but FBI can't use or conduct any investigation off of the classified documents. That was the first appeal to the 11th Circuit, which got the classified stuff back in uh, DOJ and FBI's hands. It is It has been strange, though, AG, that the Trump team seems to be really focused on just trying to understand what they had. So they had all this classified stuff. It's all over his office. It's in boxes in the floor of his closet. It's in desk drawers that he's clearly opening and going into. And even they are not sure of the extent of all the classified that was seized uh, from Mar-a-Lago. But nevertheless, we had the victory just uh, a week or so ago in the 11th Circuit that basically eliminated the process of the special master reviewing non-classified documents and making determinations about whether or not those documents should be withheld from the prosecutors because they were attorney-client privilege or subject to executive privilege, things like that. Um, so in the, in the aftermath of that victory, we saw this week the DOJ submitted a motion to extend the deadlines in the special master case uh, to Judge Cannon pending an issuance of the 11th Circuit's mandate. So basically what this means is in that civil case that Donald Trump filed in front of Judge Eileen Cannon, which has been just kind of uh, defanged by by the 11th Circuit, there are still uh, deadlines and essentially due dates. And the one that's coming up and is likely most significant to both sides is the report by the special master to Judge Cannon. So that date is likely to come up before the 11th Circuit can officially write up and issue their guidance to Judge Cannon about how they want that case dismissed. So it's uh, it's a really odd situation where you know nothing's going to come of this case. We know from what the court has already said that the case is going to be dismissed. And now we have DOJ kind of stepping in and trying to stop all proceedings immediately so it doesn't even inch forward any further before the 11th Circuit uh, gets a chance to blow it up. So her minute order, um, she issued... Uh, recently about this, she actually sided with the Department of Justice because basically the 11th Circuit needs a few days to issue a mandate to Judge Cannon to dismiss Trump's case, asking for a special master. And DOJ asked her to pause all those deadlines, like you said, in the special master review to give the 11th Circuit some time to do that. So they're kind of saying there's no need for us to do any work in the special master review because the higher court just said you didn't have jurisdiction to appoint him in the first place. So why would Donald oppose that just to be contrary? Well, that's always a good guess. Uh, it's a pretty contrary legal team he's he's got over there. But my guess here is really comes down to a factor of time. So Trump likely, and Trump's lawyers, likely want to see what the special master would have concluded about those documents, whether he would have found executive privilege or attorney-client privilege, and how even things like how he would have described those documents Uh, in any official filings that he would make in front of the judge. Even though that case we know is going to get dismissed, the judge's comments and findings and descriptions of those documents would make it on the record. And my 
my suspicion is that the Trump legal team is thinking that those sorts of comments might be helpful to them later. So if Trump is charged in this case, then one of the things that will happen is he'll get an opportunity to challenge the evidence that the government is using against him. In the course of those challenges, it might be helpful to him to have had a, a former federal judge saying to this judge Cannon on the record, even in a case that's been dismissed at that point, that he found that there was, you know, the stuff was covered by privilege or or what have you. In the same way, DOJ doesn't want that. They don't want any stray fire, any extraneous comments, any, you know, kind of pseudo judicially sounding sort of rulings on the record in this case that might cause problems for them. So for DOJ, there's absolutely nothing to gain from even hearing what the special master has to say about the work that he has done thus far. So they're trying to kind of just cut it off at the pass. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I, I hadn't thought of that Um then that's why you're here, Andrew. So you can think of those things. <laughs> I hope so. Um, so to wrap up the uh, documents portion of the show, uh, we have more news from this week. Uh, apparently, according to the Washington Post, uh, former President Trump's political action committee is paying legal bills for some key witnesses. Um, the Washington Post goes on to say the witnesses include Kosh Patel, who's testified in front of the grand jury and is key to Trump's defense. Uh, Dan Scavino, who also recently testified to the grand jury, and Walt Nauta, a potentially critical prosecution witness, according to these people, who, like others interviewed, spoke on the condition of anonymity. Now, Nauta, we know, is a Trump valet. He told FBI agents he was instructed by Donald himself to move those boxes at Mar-a-Lago, even as government investigators were trying to recover classified documents at the private club. So we all know who Kosh Patel is. Uh, just want to remind everybody Real quick, he pled the fifth to some of the questions during his first testimony. The DOJ went to Judge Beryl Howell, and I've never seen this before, but they objected to him to being able to plead the fifth. And she said, no, the fifth is broad. Um, people can use it. If if you've, nothing you're asking will implicate him, a cri- in, him in a crime, then you need to give him limited immunity. So they did. Um, so what, <laughs> Andrew, I, I don't understand how, I mean, I guess it's not illegal, for someone to pay the legal fees of people who could potentially um, testify against him or negatively about him. But it sure seems like there could be a heavy conflict of interest. What are some of the remedies for DOJ on this? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question, I think, because you have to begin with that assumption uh, that it is neither illegal nor is it unethical. And footnote here, you know, lawyers have to kind of keep their eye on both of those issues at all times because obviously they don't want to do anything illegal. They don't want their clients to do anything illegal. But they also, if they're involved in doing something unethical, that could cost them their law license. So um, they follow very closely the attorney uh, code of ethics. So in this case, a third party paying the the defense expenses or the lawyer's fees of someone else is neither illegal nor is it a violation of the attorney ethics. And you can see like in situations like, let's say, you know, you you work for a company and somebody sues that company for, you know, in civil court for whatever reason, and you as an employee of the company gets, get uh, subpoenaed to come in and be deposed, you know, give uh, information under oath. if, a, if your company pays for your attorney's rep, an attorney to represent you in that deposition, that's not uh, illegal or inappropriate in any way. So there are many, many examples you can come up with where it's fine for, an, for a third party to pay for someone else's uh, legal expenses. Where it gets dicey is why is the third party paying for someone else's attorney expenses? If they're making that payment for the purpose of controlling your testimony or making sure that you don't you know, say or do anything that might inculpate the third party, then that is a violation of the attorney ethics and could also, depending on the circumstances, be illegal. So in this case, you have Donald Trump paying the legal fees of people who are testifying in grand jury investigations or quite frankly in front of the January 6th committee about matters that could affect Donald Trump personally. So this is a very, very close call. It reminds me a lot of situations we ran into like this when I was doing organized crime work in New York. So often, you know, you'd have a bunch of lower level people uh, 
arrested as part of an investigation. And let's say the boss of the family comes in and provides them all with lawyers. And the reason the boss of the family is doing that is because he doesn't want those people to cooperate. He doesn't want them to provide truthful information to the government. He doesn't want them to say anything that could get the boss in trouble. In cases like that, occasionally one of those defendants would make it known either directly or through a family member that they didn't want the lawyer who the crime boss had appointed for them because they wanted to try to make their own situation better by cooperating. It's a really sensitive thing. And what typically ends up happening is the judge has to sit down and question that person. In the example I've given, it would be a criminal defendant, but in any other case, it could just be a random witness who's been asked to testify. Um, and to find out, like, do they really want that attorney? And is that attorney legitimately representing their interests? Or is that attorney really in a kind of a shadowy way representing the interests of the person who's paying the bill? And that's where this question of who Trump and his legal team are paying for, why are they paying for those people? Do those people really want that representation or not? And what's, what's the purpose for kind of uh, providing them with representation? Yeah, and it reminds me of the Cassidy Hutchinson situation. Uh, she was not forth- right. she was not forthcoming when she was be when her attorney was uh, bought and paid for by Donald Trump and paid for by the Save America PAC. And then when she decided this, I don't think this is in my best interest, and switched yep. attorneys, she uh, you know was able to testify fully and, and truthfully in, in front of the committee. And I think that that made a a huge difference. Um, and and so you know that's kind of why I'm wondering. Uh, how this might influence that. And there's somebody who was quoted in the Washington Post, Andrew, named Jim Walden. Um, yes. Can yeah. you tell us who he is and, and what he said? Yeah, sure. I, I know Jim Walden well. He was a uh, assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York back in ye olden times when I was an agent in New York City. Uh, he actually handled a bunch of big organized crime cases for a, a very close friend of mine. Uh, he's a great attorney, definitely an authority on these matters. I'm sure this is something that he's run into, um, you know, many times. Um, and Jim said in the Washington Post that the payment arrangement raises concerns about whether the reimbursement of legal fees may influence what the witness says and does. And now Jim also pointed out that if DOJ officials have ethical concerns, as I mentioned, they could ask a judge to question the clients about whether or not they're certain their interests are being protected. Jim went on to state, it looks like the Trump Political Action Committee is either paying for the silence of these witnesses, for them to take the fifth, or for favorable testimony. These circumstances should look very suspicious to the Justice Department, and there's a judicial mechanism for them to uh, get court oversight if there's a conflict. So I think what Jim is saying there is like, yeah, there could be an issue here. DOJ is very capable and experienced at navigating these somewhat strange waters. And I, w- I agree with that, would fully expect that they're keeping a close eye on it. Yeah, it's also of note, by the way, that the Save America Pact is the subject of a federal investigation for its fundraising tactics around false claims the election was stolen. I'm wondering if that now is under the purview of Special Counsel Jack Smith. And separately, federal investigators have issued subpoenas seeking details about the formation and operation of the PAC as part of the DOJ's probe of efforts by Donald and his allies to reverse the results of the 2020 election, which I think that right there puts it squarely within the purview of of special counsel. There's no question, right? So the PAC has kind of like inserted themselves into this uh, investigative scope by uh by making these payments to to witnesses who are providing key testimony, not only likely if if they haven't already, but to the federal grand jury, but also appearing in other places, right? To the grand jury, maybe the grand jury in Georgia, or the or or responding to um, legal process out of some of the New York investigations. So um, you could certainly see how a a broad but reasonable read of Jack Smith's. Um, authority as special counsel could certainly include um, taking a look at these payments by the PAC or other PAC activity. And as you mentioned, we know that there have been some questions raised about whether or not their fundraising around January 6th uh, could constitute some sort of a fraud. Yeah. And I know that the uh, January 6th committee was trying to subpoena information from Salesforce about emails that went out from the PAC. And we also know that Ronna McDaniel was uh, partly in charge and the RNC was partly put in charge of finding and gathering some people who would potentially be fraudulent electors, which we'll we'll talk about that uh, after this quick break when we get into the second half of the show, which will cover 
the January 6th part of the investigation by special counsel. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jack. Uh, AG, we've covered the Mar-a-Lago documents news of the week. So let's shift over to the sprawling investigation into the events leading up to January 6th um, and really everything that followed. Yeah, I have some more questions about the scope with regard to the 1-6 arm of the investigation, because it's way more complex than the so far seem- so far seemingly open and shut documents probe. That could get complicated. That's right. uh, so far, I can see how the Pence pressure campaign falls into the scope, along with the fraudulent elector scheme, which is mostly what Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA, is focusing on there and the interference into the Georgia election, um, along also the possible seditious conspiracy, if there's a connection between Trump and the violence at the Capitol, either directly, like through incitement to insurrection, or indirectly, whether Trump can be considered part of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys conspiracies. Uh, And we touched on this briefly in episode one, but I'm curious about the January 6th committee uh, preparing to make possible criminal referrals to the Department of Justice, Andrew, would all the 1-6 findings be submitted to special counsel or would they filter through main justice to be doled out to the appropriate offices, do you think? Well, typically the way a congressional referral to DOJ would take place is the committee would decide exactly what they wanted to refer and they would communicate that to the AG. Now here, since we know that there's already a special counsel who is looking into the same stuff, What I fully expect would happen here is that A.G. Garland would then take that referral and simply hand it over to Jack Smith to make the decisions about um, what he thinks of the referral and and what parts he might want to follow up on. Um, But really, all of that then raises the big question of like, what's going to be in this referral? And honestly, there's no... um, you know, there's no there's no agreed upon format for this. They could essentially take their entire report of everything they found and done and hand that over to the AG and say, therefore, we recommend that you uh, pursue criminal investigations of the following people for the following reasons. Uh, or they could do something more vague, just saying, uh, you know, our, our investigative efforts have uh, raised the question of whether or not you know, former President Trump engaged in obstruction of justice or or obstruction of Congress or or what have you. So we really have to kind of wait and see. Um, I think that that the most important thing to remember here, AG, is that at the end of the day, the referral really doesn't mean that much. It is not binding upon uh, the department in any way, right? So there, they make their referral. DOJ could throw it out the window and say, you know, we don't care, comb your hair and just take no action. That's entirely, entirely possible. That actually happens all the time, right? Members, not necessarily committees, but members are constantly writing letters to DOJ, you know, about things that they don't like or are curious about and, and demanding investigations be started up. And, you know, many of those, the DOJ, DOJ does not take up. The second thing um, to remember is, of course, that DOJ is already doing it, and they've been doing it for a long time, doing it sounds like pretty well. They've really turned up the volume and the intensity on this by bringing in Jack Smith as special counsel. So it's, I think, unlikely that um, the referral will initiate new investigative activities not already going on. What's way more significant here is what they hand over with the referral. What DOJ really needs is access to all of the evidence, all of the transcripts of the interviews, to to have a complete and very detailed understanding of exactly who the committee talked to and when and under what circumstances did those people um, interact with the committee and who was represented by counsel and who wasn't. Those are all details that that will affect how well or not well those witnesses interact with DOJ. So in other words, um, all of that stuff, here's just one way to think about that. All of that stuff, let's say uh, indictments come in the 1-6 uh, uh, cases against, you know, fill out your name of players later. Um, those defendants, whoever they are, will likely be entitled, they'll all be entitled to discovery. That's part of the federal rules. It's part of your constitutional rights. All of this F, all this work that Congress did, a lot of that will likely fall within the scope of things that the defendants are entitled to. So DOJ can't hand over, for instance, a transcript of an interview of a witness 
hand that over to a defendant. If there's exculpatory information in that, or there's information in that that undermines the value of the witness, DOJ really needs to know that before they go forward. So there's a lot of very uh, kind of detailed legal implications as to all the work that's already been done by Congress. So it's imperative that Congress shares that stuff with DOJ so they can handle it correctly, but also make good strategic decisions going forward based upon knowing the, the full universe of information that's out there about these witnesses. Yeah. And that's an important myth I also wanted to to kind of try to dispel. Um, I see a lot of folks saying, oh, DOJ just doesn't want to do the work. They're having the 1-6 committee do the work for them. And that's why they want all of their work product. And I don't see it that way. Uh, that's definitely not the case. Because of what you just described. Um, I, I mean, first of all, um, if we think back to the Durham indictment of Sussman, and we see that Jim Baker, uh, who was the star witness for the Durham side, um, was easily impeached because he told three different things, not lies, but just had three different sets of testimony, some of it conflicting to the inspector general, to Congress and to the grand jury. And I don't think that Durham was prepared for those inconsistencies. And if he was, he just went forward anyway for political reasons. But what we have to make sure happens is that all of that information is read in and understood so that any conflicts of any witnesses that could be impeached at trial if they've had inconsistent testimony from, you know, what they told the Congress was different from what they said to the grand jury, that has to be addressed before you go to trial, yeah. before you put your witnesses together, before you... Uh, you know, come up with how you're going to question your witnesses. That stuff has to be resolved first. There's yep. absolutely no way that DOJ could or should go forward with any indictments of anyone without knowing what they've said to an inspector general, what they've said, like, because we know the That's inspector right. general opened up investigations into the Department of Justice and likely questioned Rosen and Donahue and, uh, you know, Clark and all those people. And so we have to have consistent testimony between the inspector general, what happened in Congress and what happened in the grand jury in order to to have a, a concrete case to go forward. So you don't get blown up like Durham did at trial. That is absolutely right. And, I'll, you know, first of all, as a threshold matter, and, I, and I'm, I'm happy to point out things that DOJ does poorly or wrong, but laziness is not one of them. There is not an attorney worth their weight and salt, and certainly not a DOJ attorney who would ever go forward with a case that relied on a particular witness without extensively interviewing and, and fact-checking and vetting that witness directly. And part of that process would be consuming every single sworn statement that witness provided to anyone else about the same matters. Therein lies why they need to hear, you know, read those transcripts from the IG or from the January 6th committee. It's it's a huge, uh, it's actually a massive additional burden on the DOJ investigators and attorneys to have this enormous tranche of interviews and material out there that were created by Congress. It's a huge burden. And it also it opens up some significant potential liabilities or weaknesses for those witnesses. If they weren't interviewed well, if their statements weren't like clarified well and things like that, it could be a real problem for DOJ. Yeah. And, and speaking about some challenges that uh, DOJ might face, let's talk about intent for a second, because it's one of the things that makes this case a bit tougher to prosecute than the documents case, or at least the obstruction in the documents case. There's a boatload of evidence out in the public already, thanks to the January 6th hearing, that goes toward intent with regard to January 6th. But this week, Donald wrote on Truth Social, uh, which is also under federal criminal investigation for how they were funded, uh, he, he wrote that we should terminate provisions of the Constitution so we could install him again as president. Now, given what we learned about and what you taught me, Andrew, about totality of evidence in the Mueller investigation, could that be seen as Donald understanding that in order to be president, he would have had to have bro broken some laws? And I'm wondering if that statement could be used not as a smoking gun, because there's plenty of those out there already, but added onto the pile of evidence to show intent and is that why, do you think, is that why he walked it back the next day? Like his lawyers were like, dude, you just admitted that it's against the law for you to be president. Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on, on that being used as evidence? I just saw it with a, with a Bates number on top as it, as it came across my feed. Yeah, I mean, 
where do you even start with this one other than just wow, right? Uh, and there are so many reasons why he likely and should have walked that back. It's hard to really pin down exactly or get inside his head, certainly, which is the place I do not wish to be. Um, so I can't say exactly why he walked it back. But to the question of what does this help us prove in terms of a criminal case, I think the comments as uh, as it completely bizarre and maybe even offensive, uh, certainly to people who who understand and uh, value the Constitution. Um, as crazy as they were, I'm finding it hard to imagine a scenario in which those comments would be uh, direct proof of intent for a specific crime, right? So we know that every crime is um, it basically comes down to you have to prove two, two things. There is, as a teach every first semester law student an actus reus or acts and a mens rea, which is the mental intent necessary to be for those acts to be criminal. Um, so depending on the on the statute that we're talking about, um, that intent, the, the, the level and the specificity of intent that you have to be able to prove as a prosecutor uh, is different. So in other words, 371, which is the statute that makes it a crime to defraud the United States, says if two per, two or more persons conspire either to commit any offense against the United States or to defraud the United States, um, and one of such persons commits an act to affect that conspiracy, and then each is fined under the title or prison not more than five years, blah, blah, blah. So you have to intend uh, to commit an offense against the United States government or to defraud the United States government. So that's going to take um, a pretty specific showing of what was in your mind at the time you made that agreement and those acts uh, were taken. So his abandonment, I guess, recommendation to the destroyer, uh, remove the constitution, certainly, I guess, from applying to him, I don't know that it would, would suit, suit the day in terms of proving the crime. But what it does do is it is incredibly powerful uh, descriptor of his kind of mental state generally, the lengths that he's willing to go to, it's certainly a comment that makes him look um, unfit to be president of the United States. And there's any number of reasons why prosecutors might want to try to get those statements, either that one or many of the other insane statements he's made over the years, um, in in front of a jury in a criminal trial. So every time he goes out and does something like this, he is definitely making his own legal plight more perilous and making the job for his uh, growing list of attorneys a lot tougher. Yeah. Yeah. And then we also got some news. Finally, we'll wrap up with this. There's there's a push now from special counsel, obviously, to obtain direct evidence in the fraudulent elector scheme. We saw that in the form of multiple subpoenas you mentioned at the top of the show to key election officials in battleground states. Um, and I think that the uh, Washington Post uh, is the one who covered this story. Can you can you tell us what the Washington Post had to say about this? Yeah, sure. Um, according to the Washington Post, uh, and I quote here, special counsel Jack Smith has sent grand jury subpoenas to local officials in Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin, three states that were central to President Donald Trump's failed plan to stay in power following the 2020 election, seeking any and all communications with Trump, his campaign, and a long list of uh, allies. And we also know that the request for records arrived in uh, Wisconsin, uh, I'm sorry, Wisconsin, Arizona and Michigan late last week and in Milwaukee on Monday. They are among the first known subpoenas issued since Smith was named uh, special counsel last month. Um, And we know that uh, all of them are, of course, focused on the investigation of January 6th and the attack of the Capitol. I think the key thing to focus on here, AG, is that these subpoenas cut right to the heart of that potential offense that I mentioned just a minute or so ago, and that is a conspiracy to defraud the United States 
you know, we know just from watching the hearings of the January 6th committee that that effort with the fake electors is at the heart of not just Trump, but the team around him. So you're talking about people like John Eastman and maybe Rudy Giuliani and others to concoct a fraudulent scheme that would basically steal the election from Joe Biden and from the American people and allow Donald Trump to remain in power, even though he lost the election. Um, so it does not surprise me at all that Jack Smith and his team is going out there and basically going after the evidence of how that agreement, those agreements or those conspiracies got started, who was in them, what communications they had, because communications between co-conspirators are often some of the most powerful evidence of agreement, right? For that conspiracy, you have to have an agreement and an act. Um, the communications are key to proving agreement, typically. So not surprised they're doing it. We know that the January 6th committee went down the same road. You're going to see a lot of duplication of effort here. The special counsel kind of talking to people that already appeared in front of the January 6th committee, dropping subpoenas on people and institutions to grab some of that same evidence. But this is something they have to do. DOJ has got to acquire that evidence through official channels with legal process in order to be able to use it later in a potential prosecution. Yeah. And Andrew, a lot of folks are asking, why have they waited so long to... Well, I want to say this. I want to ask this question in light of the fact that before the 60-day pre-election blackout window, like 50 or 60 subpoenas were sent out to the actual fraudulent electors themselves. And now these subpoenas are being sent out uh, after the appointment of special counsel to the election officials who may be less recalcitrant than some of the actual fraudulent electors themselves. But a lot of folks are asking, why now? Why didn't you subpoena these guys last year? Uh, and I was wondering if you could maybe provide some sort of insight as to why it has taken so long for these subpoenas to now just now kind of reach these key election officials in these battleground states. It's a really good question, AG, and it's impossible to know exactly without obviously being on the inside of the investigation. I mean, the possibilities could range from like maybe some of these election officials did speak to investigators kind of informally um, months ago to kind of let them know what happened. But now they have to go back and get the actual records, communications, phone records, uh, official records of election officials, uh, acts, um, things of things of that nature. And again, you want to get that stuff through legal process, through subpoenas, uh, because that's how you authenticate it in order to be presented um, first to the grand jury, but ultimately in uh, trial. Right. So um, something else so that occurs to me, Andrew, uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but something else yep. just occurred to me, uh, you know, I, I remember one of the things that the Department of Justice asked the committee for first was their information on fraudulent electors. And so perhaps they had to wait to get that information from the committee, as we were talking about before, before they go into the grand jury room to make sure there's consistency with testimony. Perhaps that's the reason. It's really possible. I mean, any there's a pretty wide open field and we're kind of uh, feeling our way through it a little bit. Um, so I wouldn't want to say with with great confidence, like, oh, I know exactly why they're doing it now. I mean, honestly, some of it could come down to there is still, I think, a lingering question as to what level of will there was within the department and, quite frankly, within the FBI, my former institution, months and months ago, you know, at a time when many folks were thinking like, of course, somebody should be looking at the former president and the team of of. I'll just say advisors, but I take that with air quotes around him in a lead up to January 6th. Um, and for quite some time, we really wondered if the if the DOJ investigation was going kind of, um, you know, in a concerted way in that direction. We now know they are. Um, but I think there is a question as to when you roll the clock back five months, six months, seven months, um, was it the same commitment to that direction? I don't know. We won't know that until the case becomes public, um, if, it, if in fact it does with indictments later on in a trial and all that stuff. But uh, I think it's a good thing to remember. Yeah. And I definitely think that the uh, documents case is more straightforward than the fraudulent elector scheme. And I think the fraudulent elector scheme is a lot more straightforward than linking Donald to violence at the Capitol. But there's a lot we don't know. And we're just going to have to see how it goes as this investigation unfolds. Uh, but I, I wanted to bring up 
a third piece. I was like, oh, we'll do the first half on documents, second half on January 6th. I keep leaving out the obstruction part of this investigation, which is unlike <laughs> me because it is my favorite volume of the, of the Mueller report, uh, meaning favorite meaning so just well laid out. All the elements are um, addressed in three elements of obstruction of justice. Let's uh, talk to me just a bit before we get out of here. And then I have one more question for you. Uh, because, you know, we know Donald's PAC is paying for some of the legal bills for key witnesses. Uh, Donald has made several public statements about pardoning people who participated in the attack on the Capitol. And we saw several pardon offers used in the Mueller report on obstruction. Uh, I, I think I feel like I and maybe others are kind of underestimating the importance of the obstruction piece uh, of this investigation. There, there's no question. It is a key part of the investigation. Um yeah, it seems like there's a there's a lot of those here. It's a cornucopia of potential investigative activity and uh, directions uh, in which to go. But obstruction is, uh, always plays a, a primary role when you're talking about the activities of the former president. Um, and obstruction in this investigation has many has many different possible forms, right? If you're thinking about paying for witnesses to influence their testimony, there were some allegations to during the January 6th hearings that phone calls were being made from uh, possibly uh, the former president or people around him to people, to uh, witnesses before they would go in and testify. So all those things go to kind of the traditional witness tampering type obstruction. But here we also have, and likely more significantly, one of the primary allegations about the entire effort leading up to January 6th is that it was an effort or a conspiracy to obstruct uh, to obstruct government, right? To obstruct Congress, to obstruct the certification of the real electors and the peaceful transfer of power. So um, I think you have to kind of always keep that shadow of obstruction kind of in the back of your mind as you're looking at these developments. And hopefully, as we see, we learn more and more about the evidence and the uh, witnesses that are that are appearing in front of some of these uh, committees and uh, grand juries and things. Yeah. And I think that that might be something that the department or that the one six committee could possibly hand over to the Department of Justice that they might not have already had with, you know, with regard to uh, who possibly uh, might have participated in witness intimidation of January 6th witnesses and things like that. That I think that could be uh, something there. And uh, uh, one one last question for you, back to the scope. Um, recently, and this is goes, I'm, I'm piggybacking on stuff that's recently happened in the January 6th committee. Robin Voss, uh, chair GO, uh, GOP, head of the GOP of Wisconsin, uh, was recently called in to testify to the January 6th committee. Uh, I don't know that he if he's been subpoenaed uh, as part of this group of subpoenas to election officials in key swing states. Uh, but he, 20 months after January 6th, uh, pursuant to a Wisconsin court decision about ballot drop boxes, I think, Donald Trump called up Robin Voss and said, hey, why don't you overturn the election based on this court finding? Uh, it seems like the interference, I think it's also, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's important we understand that this kind of stuff didn't end on January 6th. It continued and it does continue and it continues to this day. And I think that also sort of piggybacks on the obstruction piece. There could be obstruction going on right this second that, you know, that we don't know about that the DOJ is looking into. But do you think that that kind of uh, stuff that happened 20 months after the attack on the Capitol is, is I, I think it would fall within the scope of what the special counsel is investigating? I, I mean, it certainly would fall within the scope of what they're doing. And it also is just another another thing to put in the already deep and full bucket of stupid and destructive things that Donald Trump has said on the record. This one, uh, you know, I mean, like you're talking about wondering what's going on in his head. This one makes pretty clear he's still trying to overturn the, the results of the 2020 election. So it would be very. So in other words, this statement might be relevant in a trial. If, as part of his defense, he tried to say, I never intended to overturn the results of the election, you would use this statement to show, no, in fact, you did. And 20 months later, you were still doing it. Um, so these th these statements don't help him. Um, but yeah, I, it, the, the world didn't stop, thankfully, on January 6th. And um, Donald Trump's legal problems as a result of what happened on January 6th uh, really depend in large part on the months long effort that landed on January 6th and the thing 
things that happen after January 6th. And Jack Smith is not limited to like the events that took place on that day. He's going to look across the entire scope of the buildup, actual attack, and then, of course, how people reacted to it uh, in its aftermath, which might say something relevant about Trump and his advisors and his team and what they really intended to do. All right. Well, thank you so much for answering all of my questions. And again, thank you for uh, everyone for listening to to Jack. I really appreciate that. And uh, it's been another enlightening week. We'll see what happens next week. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it I could be anything. I know. I always when I started the Mueller investigation podcast, I was like, I don't know if we have enough content for our weekly show. Um, but uh, I, I, it, I, I was proven wrong then. And I, I think that uh, that will be that will bear out here with this investigation as well. Yeah, I fully expect it will. Uh, it's super interesting. So I'm just really glad to be here to sort it out with you uh, and all of our listeners. So thanks very much. All right. That's our show this week. Please subscribe, share with your friends. We'll be back next week to discuss all things special counsel on Jack. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andrew McCabe. And you've been listening to Jack. We'll see you next week. M-S-W Media. <laughs>